slightly to 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 Maestro, which I'm probably I've oh, already I mispronounced thought, it. No, that's perfect. I thought we'd avoided that subject quite successfully. Well, I was I'm trying to find ways to avoid it as much as I possibly can. <laughs> Sorry, it doesn't um, matter at all. I suppose what I was interested in is about how much of a left turn it was um, for you and for the for the people reading it, because in some ways I think you made you've made this point already that. A lot of the people you've you've written about, and the times you wrote about, were far less kind of you know civilized than the one. Well, um, right. Yes. Uh, I was curious about this idea of, of of your agent approaching you with a sort of. I think it was some, to write some, something, something erotic. Something like Fifty Shades of Grey is what she wanted, obviously. And was that because of the market post? It was just. It was just at the time that Fifty Shades was really exploding, and every publisher was scrabbling for some mm. sort of similar thing. Um, so I did, and, and I, well, you know the story. She hated it. She said it was disgusting. I put it away. Did something else. Quite liked it. Took it out. She still said it was disgusting. Alan, funnily enough, bless him, to this day has not ever mentioned it. Despite the fact I sent him the novel at least three times with a series of increasingly pleading emails, the last one said, "I don't want any money. You can have this book for free. Please read it." He didn't. And he's never alluded to it. So I just saw him last week in Frankfurt. We don't speak of it. With, how much was that? I suppose what I was asking about when you, about the idea of you being boxed in was that you'd obviously earned some some sort of uh, a, a reputation within publishing that that the pitch and the reality of this of this book was um, was was that the, was that the problem or is it that people didn't want you to be writing? Um, I think I think in my agent's case, she just thought it was disgusting. And I don't know what Alan Sampson thought because he's never mentioned it. Um, and I think I, I showed it to quite a few agents who didn't want to agent it. Uh, and this is even after Fifty Shades and then... No, but the problem was it's not Fifty Shades, you see. It's not romantic. Well, I was going to ask... It's, it's not a love story. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's not actually anything like Fifty Shades. I mean, I don't know if you've read Fifty Shades. I read the first one. I mean, people who make that comparison, it's a bit, that's, that's a, a box that does make me tired, actually. That makes me tired. Because it also makes me feel really sorry for all the very, very angry people on Amazon <laughs> who, who bring down my story to me because they, they wanted Fifty Shades and they got that. Well, no wonder they, they feel cheated. I feel cheated. Well, I was curious because I remember I have, I have read for an article I, I wrote and a yeah. friend of mine who loved them, um, she points out that that uh, as um, Stephanie May, who wrote the Twilight oh, yeah. books, which they're based on, is a romance novel. Yes. She can't do horror um, as those books got on. Um, I think in the second Fifty Shades, there's lots of hearts and flowers. Um, Christian, as he's belting the hell out of her, then fills the. Does he actually hit her in volume two? Because you know, I, 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 you never you know, got around to it in volume one. Well, he sort of. No, he got a bit stoppy with his belt at the end, and she flapped us off. There's a lot of rules, and there's a lot of rules, aren't there, about there's, what there's, he... there's a great deal of explaining. Yeah. In fact, if you wanted to write something very, very clever, you could say that what E.L. James really has in common um, with Dessart is that there is very little sex, mm. because 120 Days of Sodom is one great big long rule book mm. for a series of acts which seldom take place. Mm. The, the, the obsession. Is lists, not actions. There's a lot of safe. And it's the same thing with E.L. James. It's mm. all about the list, it's all about the words. They, they don't even do it till page 119. Mm. Well, the first harness is in a, I think, in a, a, a simulated fighter jet or something, oh, as I faint, faintly remembered. 
But the, I was just thinking in terms of, of kind of literary genre, your models are quite... I mean, I, I did read this book about a year ago, and I sort of did probably what lots of other people did and flicked through it. Um, if I, I got in touch with my 13-year-old self and probably flicked to all the... the all the dirty bits. All the dirty bits. They're not that Then I read it last week, and actually it's a completely different book than, than I remembered it, and to some extent than I've read re- reviews of. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, an obvious, a lot of people mentioned Patricia Highsmith. It's a, but it is on before and anything else. It's a it's a thriller. Was that always yeah, was yeah. that always a that was that was the plan? Um, I wanted to write about. I mean, I didn't have Ripley in mind particularly, but I suppose it must have been lurking about somewhere in my head. Um, yeah, I wanted to write write a thriller about a really bad woman. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> I'm glad you say it's a different book than the one that was reviewed because, I mean, Standpoint gave it the spectacular nine pages, nine whole pages, um, which was a, a, a literary critique the likes of which I never expected to, to, to receive ever, ever for anything I'd written. And that was the only review who, who really appeared to have read the book. I mean, the rest of them really don't seem to have bothered reading it very much properly. Mm. I haven't read it. Because it's got lots of... I don't know, it's got lots of jokes in it for a start. And it's really about, I don't know, it's about anything, it's about meritocracy, I suppose, in the satirical Michael Young sense of the word. Um, but I just think, I mean, I, I think it's quite funny. It's quite joyful. My other model actually was um, Bonkbusters, Shirley Conran's Lace. I mean, everyone ought to read that book because it's so much and I think sort of to go back to what you were saying earlier about hierarchies when you're young I mean I I grew up in a really boring town in the north of England where you know a copy of Vogue was a rare thing Mm. Um, and I learned about what I thought was glamour from reading Bulbusters you know what would be sort of Jilly Cooper early Jilly Cooper well no actually early Jilly Cooper no, I, I, I was, they were more romantic. I was slightly off gen for that. Okay. Uh, no, um, well, lace was oh, was yeah. the big one. Uh, Jackie Collins. Um, I mean, I had no idea where Richard was or even how to pronounce it, but I was, <laughs> I was going there, you know. And that, that's actually what I wanted to, to do in this book. I wanted to write something that was sparkly, that was fun, that transported you. And and when I was sort of working on it seriously I thought about myself reading in my bedroom and I thought about girls going to work on the tube on a grey morning and and that when they opened the book for a few minutes they'd be in Portofino or in Paris and that's why it's got all the you know the outfits and the descriptions and the precision because it's written for a generation of women who actually get that shit. You know, they're all graziaed up and ready to go. Mm. And it's not enough to say, you know, she wore an elegant black gown. No, if you're imagining that's me, that's me on that boat, you want to know where's the frock from, what shoes has she got with it? You need to know. You know, Judith is a brand-aware millennial and my audience are brand-aware girls. Mm. And that was the one thing that really pissed me off. Reviews who said, you know, just relying on designer fashions as mm. a form of shorthand. It didn't appear to be a problem when Mark Lawson did it in his most recent novel, and did it clumsily, I might add. Um, but I thought, do you not know anything? Do you not read anything? And also, when you, when you, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, 
you know, again, I, I didn't know that you pronounced the, the, the ch in Versace, mm. but that's the kind of jacket I wanted to wear. Mm. And I could dream about that. I could dream about a Chanel handbag. Was this something aspirate? I mean, it did remind me, and I, I read my share of those kinds of... I certainly read Lace because I love the TV show so much. Mm. Um, but, and there was something incredibly glamorous, that idea of... And the, those early Bond novels, once oh. you got them out of the horrible Eastern European... But going around that, I mean, that well, life on Bond, a yacht. Bond is, is sex and shopping for men, obviously, with violence. Um, but yeah, I think aspirational. Um, because yeah, if you're doing something that's got to, that wants to transport people, then it's got to do it properly. And you've also, if you're doing glamour, it's got to be convincing. Um, and I also thought, if you're going to do violence mixed with glamour, you'd, you'd better combine them in a way that makes you want to read on for one bit or the other. I find it quite hard to read the, those books with the uh, with the lots of the design labels without thinking of uh, Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho. Well, there's a reference to it in the and, book, obviously. And I was thinking about J- Judith Tone, which I found incredibly seductive, very very funny. I thought she was, and but there was a touch of I think you mentioned Lucian Freud at one point. It had a touch of those kind of painters. The dis- the descriptions, extraordinary descriptions of the appalling collection of men um, one of his name was James so it made me feel very unsettled the sheer joy of reading these words but f- um, the flabby mottled curtain of his, of his cheeks, I think that is James um, the most appalling scene uh, which was the horrible colonel with the, the colonel, colonel um, Morris, yeah. this close his teeth were hideously tiny uh, browning fetal stumps which gave me some nightmares and another glorious phrase um uh, the rinded, th- his description of, I think, James's dead dead body, the, the rinded, thick-nailed feet. And there's a real sort of relish for sort of uh, the nastiness of, of mm. f- her awareness of bodies sort of in... Dec- it made me feel very, firstly, very unfit, um, very self-conscious. It was a, but she had a real eye for that, in the same way she had a real eye for, for beauty and paintings, mm. but she had an eye for the, for the opposite. And it made me feel... She was a rather extraordinary presence to, to be in. Um, oh, thank you. Well, it's a story about perception. The book is all about perception. It's about her ability to see. What time is it? Oh, God. Others' inability to see. Are you out of time? Yeah, you can, you can carry on. Um, and you've got about five minutes. Oh, okay. great. Okay. Yeah, to, uh, okay. Thanks. Yeah. So it's 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 her ability to to see and her and others' inability to see, and she operates in the gap in between. Her her strength is is the power of others' lack of perception. Mm. So it made sense to me, especially given that she's supposed to be able to tell a real from a fake stubs at a glance. That she's going to be someone who who looks. The book is all about looking. Mm. All about surfaces. All about what you can see in every. I mean, it, I tried to make the visual detail very precise because I felt that since it's told in her voice she would have that kind of awareness. There are references to, to whether she's enjoying some of the dark things she does. Mm. Um, she talks about killing, she says, I didn't need to kill this, this person. Mm. Is this a book about someone who's discovering something dark in, or has she been made that, I suppose in some ways I'm thinking of I have to wait for book two for the answer to that question, yes. That's an excellent question, and it is answered in book two, yes. 
I was curious reading that horrible humiliation scene, the, the, that extraordinary humiliation passage where she loses her job, she sends mm-hmm. soup to the colonel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, is that another thing that you think that perhaps the younger female and perhaps older female readers have responded to? I mean, we're living in a post-Trump um, revelation age. It's, I was very curious about her humiliation and sense of powerlessness and how then you might, obviously in the most extreme fashion, try and re- regain some sense of authority. I think she takes quite um, a pragmatic view of uh, humiliation. I don't think she feels. I don't think she feels outraged by it because, in a sense, she thinks, "Okay, that's the way of the world. What am I going to do about it?" Um, I, I think she she has a sort of lack of affect, which, in a sense, is, is part of her strength, but it's also the source of all the you know, terrible things that she she subsequently does. But yeah, I, I think. One thing that I find is really extraordinary is, is that you know the, the reviewers who claim that I am not, not a feminist because you know I write about this world in which you know old rich ugly men exploit beautiful young women and how dare I? Mm. I think, well, where have you been? I mean, if you want to see it, go to Saint Tropez in uh, in the summer, go to Saint Moritz in the winter, go to any nightclub in Mayfair on a Thursday night in London, and there you will see it in front of your eyes. This is a reality. It's not some kind of um, you know, dystopian projection on my part. Uh, that is a reality. This is the world we live in, and this is one character's obviously slightly ludic, slightly fanciful response to it. But yeah, I, I think it is, in a sense, reflecting something which which exists in the world. But what I wouldn't, what I wouldn't like to say though, is, is that she, because she is to an extent complicit in it. I mean, she does go and work at the Shark Club. She does. Um, except the offer from James and that was interesting to me too um, her complicity I mean you know consent is obviously a highly sort of politicised issue right now but she is not an unwilling participant at times in her own humiliation because it has an object for her and that I think is really interesting we'll be talking about this won't we at Cheltenham on um, with, with Garth Greenman when we were talking about the whole thing of writing about transactional sex mm-hmm. and what I, what I really wanted to say although I didn't because he was such a nice man um, <laughs> and he was saying that you know in, in his book you know even during the, the transactions which are seen from the point of view of the person who's paying for them that you know both parties are deeply and uniquely human and he wanted to write about transactional sex in such a fashion and I thought well no no because you're just a John and you're not human, and why do you think that Mitko thinks you're anything other than a John? Mm. You've written a whole book which is wonderfully poetic and tragically naive. Um, the idea, I mean, it, it, it's one of the oldest cliches in the book, isn't it? I mean, it's the one that, that Balzac has so much fun with. You know, the idea that, that, that the horse sees you as a human being. She doesn't. Mm-hmm. She really doesn't. So that, that's something that I, I find really interesting, and we, we didn't really have a chance to go into it as much as I would have liked in Cheltenham, but it's definitely something that was I, I was trying to engage with or at least touch upon in this book, the degrees of complicity and humiliation, or at which point participation renders the humiliation as something else. 
Well, I've been thinking a lot about, I mean, you look at the US presidential election, and it seems to me that Hillary Clinton gets an enormous amount of flack for doing certain things because she has to work within the system mm. Mm. and to keep working within the system. And that means that perhaps te- making choices that she knows mm. is not one that she would make if she was outside of politics. Yes, but she's not acting as, as a private individual, exactly. Um, no, so, I think that's a very good way of putting it, yes. So the problem is the system as much as... So I, I felt that a lot with Judith, that it's not that she didn't have other choices, but for things she wanted to do, she felt she, as though she didn't have a choice. Yes. Or she made she made certain choices made knowing certain, what the consequences. Well, and the whole book, the whole uh, the trajectory of the book is, is is choice and consequence, choice and consequence, and things get worse and worse and worse because of one mm. initial choice that she's made, and all the other things kind of knock on from that. Mm. The question is, which is the bad choice? That's what's interesting. Is it when she goes to France? Is it when she decides to run away with James's money? Is it when she decides to steal the painting? Is it when she? Can, where's where's the tipping point? I think it's made me feel uncomfortable for that reason. I suppose it's partly because I kept wanting to know: was there a transformation in her? And this is what it was. John Banville's we were talking about. He he has this idea that he talked about being falling over in the street and people picking him up. And he said, "But in another world, they'd be herding me into a cattle truck on the way east." Mm -hmm. That human beings fundamentally, I suppose, indifferent um, in that indifferent is that. That we can we can move morally either way depending on so and I was mm. I was wondering how to read Judith and those and if, if the next book is going to explain that. <laughs> but I couldn't tell if she was because at the beginning she did seem I was surprised people were using terms like sociopathic to describe her because I didn't ever feel she was she was she uncaring. She's quite nice, and I think she is quite nice. She's nice to her friend Dave. Well, Dave is the person that she humiliates, I suppose. I suppose in a way, yes, but then he's going to get his own back. In a nice way, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to think of someone else she's nice to. Um, no, in in book two she does have a great line. Yvette was a friend. At least we'd party together, and she wasn't dead. <laughs> <laughs> So there's book two, and there's a. And is there a movie? Is that there is a movie um, which is currently crawling through um, development hell, but in theory is going to reappear on our screens sometime in 2018. The movie was. Am I right thinking the movie was actually this? The, the book was bought as a movie before it was bought as a book in. I mean, it's kind of curious. I was. Mm. I was fascinated. Is that partly because it was so? It was very visual, and except for. I, I think I was just really lucky. I think I had I, I had a very good agent who sent it to exactly the right person to buy it, and um, and then yeah, lots of other people were interested, which obviously made her more interested. So it was I think it was a fortunate concatenation of circumstance. Just to return very quickly yes. to you sitting at your table each day, how mm. how has this book and how has its success changed your writing? your writing life oh, I have much less time to sit at the table um, I, I spend a lot of time on planes nowadays do you like that sort no. of music? that's awful isn't it I mean I like I very much like being able to go to these wonderful places and I feel very very grateful to do so and it is amazing to see people being interested in my work that said I as Emily knows I'm not fond of the sound of my own voice and I don't really like public speaking and I get extremely frightened by groups of people so 
the having to perform part is not fun. Has it been exacerbated by, I mean, you've, you've written about this a few times, I think, um, the sense of having to defend, I mean, in some ways, as we were just talking, the sense of having to defend your, yourself for having, whether it's in literary terms or, I mean, I felt, the Guardian piece made me feel slightly, it made me feel a bit sad, because I felt you having to defend yourself, I just thought you should just tell me what to... Um... <laughs> Honestly, no, I... people are actually people are really rather rude uh, I, I suppose that what's more difficult than that is, is that you have to defend yourself in a way which makes you f- sound appealing so you can't actually just tell someone to fuck off or worse still you can't actually say well look if you'd actually read any books you would know that you, you can't begin like that so you have to be well let me tell you you know and it's you, you, you're sort of being defensive whilst not even being allowed to defend yourself. That's a conundrum, I think. Um, Emily, I don't know, I, I'm floundering here. Why aren't I any good at doing this public speaking thing? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Help you're me. You're actually extraordinary. No, but she has to hang around with me and, mo- and watch me sort of pace about and smoke fags and not be able to speak. And You said the C word in 15 languages during one speech, which was... This is true. I did do that. <laughs> really? I can send you the link to the talk.